Most of you who uh, know me know I'm not really into movies. Not what you would call the, uh, the movie buff. But one movie that I do enjoy, one of my, probably my favorite movie, is Star Wars. And hopefully you guys have all seen the, the new trailer that's just been released for the new Star Wars that's coming out in December. Hopefully you're excited about that, as I am. Um, but if you're anything familiar with the Star Wars, you know that episodes four, five, and six came out first. And then the villain in those episodes was Darth Vader. And if you remember in Empire Strikes Back, when Obi-Wan Kenobi was uh, talking to Luke, he explained that Darth Vader, he was seduced by the dark side. That Darth Vader wasn't always Darth Vader. He used to be Anakin Skywalker. You know, so before the first three episodes came out, you know, we had only were aware of the episodes four, five, and six. So it was kind of like, okay, so this evil villain, Darth Vader, he got seduced. Well, how did he get seduced? It's kind of hard to imagine Darth Vader being anybody but Darth Vader. But then when episodes one, two, and three came out, we were able to see Anakin Skywalker as a boy. We were actually able to witness how he got seduced, seduced by the dark side of the force. And one of the things, if you remember, I'm not sure if you're into Star Wars as much as I am, but in episodes one and two, they warned him. As a matter of fact, Yoda, you know, the little green guy, he, he warned him, and as did uh, Mace Windu, who Samuel Jackson played. He warned him. He said that he had too much anger and, and, and too much fear. So he was, he was prone to, to being seduced, but he did not heed those warnings. So he kept on in his quest to be a Jedi, and then eventually he was seduced by the dark side of the Force, and he became Darth Vader, which led to much terror and, and much evil and much heartbreak. When we come today to Proverbs chapter 7, and we have another story here of seduction. And we also have a warning, a warning against seduction, a father's warning to a son. So we open up our text beginning in chapter 7 with a father sitting with a son, a godly father, a father with wisdom, teaching his son. In verse 1, he says to his son, my son, keep my words. What is he telling his son there? He's telling his son, son, obey my words. Don't just hear what I say, but listen to them. Obey me. Continue on in verse 1, and treasure up my commands with you. So not only is this, this wise father telling his son to keep his words, he's calling his son to treasure up his commands. The father's desire for the son is to, to hoard his word. The father's word is of much value and it's of great worth. It's kind of like when you see like diapers on sale. You want to hoard them up, right? Because you know you're going to need them later if you have a, a newborn or a small child. So you hoard them up because they're of great value and great worth. So you store them up. So this is what this father, he wants his son to store up his word, hoard up on it. So go on to verse 2. He says, keep my commandments and live. So here it is. The father, he reiterates the importance of keeping his words. He repeats himself. He says, keep my commandments and live. So anytime we see repetition in the Bible, that's kind of a to beware what he's about to say is important. It's wake up, you know, pay attention. You know, Jesus used to do this, right? He would say, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say unto you. So it's, it's pay attention. So the father is stressing the importance of the son of keeping his word, obeying his word, treasuring up his word. 
And then the father in verse 2, he reveals what is the purpose, what is the result of, of keeping his commandments? Well, the result is life. He says, keep my commandments, obey my word so that you might live. It, it, it's for your benefit. It's not just keeping the commands for the sake of just keeping the commands, but it's, it, it's for life. And then verse 2, he says, keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. So here again, the father, he's urging his son to protect his teaching. He's saying, safeguard it. He's saying, don't lose it. He says, let my teaching and my words and, and my commands, let it be your, your most prized possession. You know, the apple of your eye, it's the pupil of your eye. It's, it's what enables you to see. So we can appreciate this because we, we value our sight and we will do anything we can to preserve it and to keep our sight. So how much more should we value the word and the commands of God to give us, to give us life? We should value those, preserve them, safeguard them, keep them, cherish them, treasure them. The father goes on in verse 3, bind them on your fingers. Here we go again. We see the father in his call to the son to keep his word. It just intensifies. Binding the father's word and and his teaching to his fingers, it would, it would have been a reminder to the son. It's kind of like having, you're married, you have a wedding ring. It's a reminder that, that you're in covenant. Quick story here. When I uh, first became a Christian, one of the, uh, the brothers discipled me. He kind of had this uh, rule. He, Reggie probably remembers this. Uh, it was to carry your Bible around. No matter where you were doing, where you were going, what you were doing. You always had your Bible. So I remember we'd go somewhere and we'd be at the bowling alley and we'd have these big Bibles, our swords. So no matter where we went, we always had the Word of God on us. Well, I guess now with, uh, you know, smartphones, most of us, we probably do have the Word on us. It might not be as visible because it's not as big as the Bible as those, some people would argue iPhone 6 Plus probably is as big as the, as the, as the Bible. But, you know, even though I'm not trying to be legalistic, but there, the principle of that, just having the word on you, one thing it did, how it helped was it was a reminder. It was kind of hard to go to a restaurant or a bowling alley and act up when I have a, a huge Bible sitting on a table and I'm carrying a huge Bible. It was just a, a reminder that we need to be keeping the, the commands and, and obeying the word of God, you know, and, uh, and God gives us reminders, right? That's when we have communion, we think of the Lord's table, it's a word picture of, of the gospel. And why do we have reminders? It's because we're a forgetful people. We forget. I mean, how many people remember what the sermon was about last Sunday? Or what we talked about in Home Fellowship Group? We are forgetful people, so we constantly need to be reminded. So the son says to the father, he says, bind them on your fingers. And again, in verse 3, write them on the tablet of your heart. So here the son, he's, he is called to preserve his father's words. You know why? So, so that he could recall them and so that he could use them with ease. You know, we want the, uh, the Holy Spirit to have something to you. That's why we store the word in our hearts so that we wouldn't sin uh, against our Lord. So the son is to internalize the father's words. So he could have it in him so it would come out of him. Because if the word is in him, then his actions and his motives would, would be f- pure and they would conform to the Bible. The father continue on, continues on in verse 4. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. In biblical poetry, the word sister often meant wife. And we see that in the, uh, in the Song of Solomon. So in essence, the father is telling his son that he is to be yoked up with the word. With his word, he is to have this close and this 
intimate relationship with the fathers were. In verse 4, continue on. And he says, call insight your intimate friend. Once again, the son is to be closely acquainted with and, and familiar with and close to the word that the father is sharing. And so what is this, this word that the father is sharing? Well, if we look throughout Proverbs, it's about wisdom. It's about understanding. If we were to do a, a survey through Proverbs, you'll see a reoccurring theme. It is to get wisdom, to get understanding, to gain insight. Well, what is wisdom? Well, simply defined, wisdom, it's a skill or an ability. R.C. Sproul says it like this. He says, wisdom is choosing the best and noblest end at which to aim, along with the most appropriate and effective means of achieving that end. There we go, wisdom. It's having the best aim, the best goal, and taking the best method, the best road to achieving that best goal. So in a moral context, which Proverbs comes to us in a moral context, wisdom is the skill and the ability to discern between right and wrong. So oftentimes when we pray for wisdom, it's, Lord, who should I marry? Or should I take this job? Should I buy this house? Should I go to this church? Which are all good prayers. We want wisdom for those things. But many times those aren't necessarily moral issues. What we should be praying for probably more often, or I know I could say in my own life, is for wisdom in a moral sense, the ability to discern and to choose and to act wise and rightly and correctly and biblically. So where does this wisdom come from? Proverbs 2.6, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. How do you gain this wisdom? Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want wisdom? Fear the Lord. Honor him. Revere him. Hold him in high esteem. So what is the purpose of wisdom? The fruit of wisdom. Well, the father tells the son. The wisdom, it will keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. You see, the purpose of wisdom is to keep you from sin. Wisdom will help you anticipate and avoid sin. But before we transition to the Father's narrative in the next few verses, um, we need to address a couple things to keep a few things in mind. One, yes, this text deals with the serious and, and grievous sin of adultery. But as heinous as the sin of adultery may be, it is not the unpardonable sin. So but keep that in mind. There's no sin too great for the grace of God. No matter what you have done or who you are, if you come to the Lord, if you repent and you turn from your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone, he will save you and forgive you of adultery and every single sin, your past, present, and future. Another point. Now, forgiveness, if you're a Christian or anybody who's committed adultery, the forgiveness of adultery does not necessarily remove the repercussions of the sin of adultery. And we see this. 
the adultery and, and betrayal. It, it wrecks havoc on families and it has lasting effects and consequences that people continue to deal with. Another point. If you think you're beyond falling into adultery or falling into any sexual sin, for that matter, think again. Look at the statistics. I'm not going to go into them and bore you, but they're scary. We know numbers don't lie, but people do lie. They lie often. And I don't want anybody in here to lie to themselves. Also, this passage in, in the sermon, it's, it's not for the men only, nor is its application limited to adultery and, and sexual sin only. So I don't want the ladies here or anyone else not married or whatever tuning out. This has application and, and it's relevant for all of us here. And I say this when we look at the term adulteress. Consider what an adulteress is. An adulteress is a wayward an unfaithful wife. And if you're here today and you are in Christ, then Jesus is your bridegroom. He's your husband. And we are his, his bride and his wife. So whenever we sin against the Lord, we play that role of the unfaithful wife. So ask yourself this. How many times has the Lord caught you cuddled up with sin? How many times has he caught you in the arms of an idol? And if so, then we should be able to relate. To some degree or another, we should see ourselves in this text, not just as the wise father or the son who receives the wisdom, but to some degree or another, we should see ourselves as the foolish young man, and to some degree as the adulteress or seductress. Remember, it's not just sexual sin that's offensive to God, but all sin is offensive to God. All of our sins sent Jesus to the cross. There is no sin too small. There's no sin that we can just overlook. Sin is rebellion against our faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we move on. And we see here in Proverbs chapter 7, verses 6 through 9, we're going to see the, the characteristics and the behavior patterns of the one who is seduced, the young foolish man. Perhaps we can call him the seducey. I don't know if that's a word or not. But however, the one who's seduced. So in verses 6 and 7, the father begins his narrative. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple. I have perceived among the youths a man lacking sense. So here we go. You have the father, the, the wise father watching this young man. So this young man, he's ignorant to the fact that he's being watched. You see, not only was this young man being watched by the father, in this narrative, he was being watched by God the Father. Psalm 139, verse 7, in Psalm of David, he says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? There's nowhere that you can go, wherever you are. If you ascend into heaven or descend down to Sheol, 
God is there. God is, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. There's nowhere that you can't go where God cannot see you. There is nothing that you can do that is hidden from the sight of the Lord. So that's one characteristic of this young man and, and one character trait that makes us prone to seduction, to being seduced, is that we forget about the omnipresence of God. The omnipresence of God is not just a, a theological concept, right? It's not just an attribute, perfection of God. It's, it's practical. See, that's the difference between wisdom and knowledge because we can know these things. We can know and we can say that God is omnipresent. What impact does that have on the way that you live your life and how you deal with sin if you know that God is watching you, that he's always watching you? Moving on, we see that in in verse 7, the young man is described as being simple. So what does it mean to be simple? It means that he was naive or that he was gullible, that he was foolish, and even that he was seducible. The young man is also described as lacking sense. So in other words, he is devoid of wisdom and understanding. You see, so that's why he could be called naive and gullible and foolish and seducible and simple. It's because he did not seek wisdom. This this foolish, simple young man did not listen to his father. He did not obey his father's teaching. He did not keep his father's commands. He has no wisdom. Therefore, he is a fool. Moving on to verse 8. We see that the young man is in the wrong place. Verse 8 says, passing along the street near her corner. You see, this young man, he was on the corner, in the streets. He was in a place where sin happens. Wisdom tells us that there are some places where we should not be. We know, brothers and sisters, that holds true. For us, there are just some places that we need not go. And see, the problem is, is that any time we try to lay boundaries or set standards, we get accused or we might think, oh, we're being legalistic. But brothers, I don't think if you've been coming to East Point Church for any length of time, we know that we are not saved by keeping the laws. We are saved by the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So boundaries and keeping the commands are a reasonable expectation for us as Christians. Now that God has saved us, therefore, how should we live? We should live in a way that glorifies the Lord and avoids sin at all costs. So if there's a situation or a place that makes me more prone to sin, then I should do all that I can. Wisdom would have me to avoid that place. Again, what is wisdom? Achieving the highest goal. The highest goal is the glory of God. To be pure as God is pure. I want to glorify him. So what's the best means? That means might be setting up boundaries, staying away from the place to where I may fall victim to sin, to where I may be seduced. But not only is the young man, young foolish man in the the wrong place, he is headed in the wrong direction. Verse 8 also says he's taking the road to her house. The young man is headed in the wrong direction. 
Once again, this demonstrates that he has no wisdom. He has no insight. He has no understanding. He has no direction. We can even say those who have no direction end up going in the wrong direction. But not only is a young man in the wrong place and he's going in the wrong direction, he is out at the wrong time. Verse 9, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night in darkness. How much more prone are we to commit sin at night when we think no one is watching? But again, God is watching. Again, it's not about being legalistic. At night, much sin happens. Not to say that sin doesn't happen in the daytime, but we know there are certain sins that are more prone to happen at night. So what does wisdom tell us? Wisdom tells us maybe we should go to bed earlier. <laughs> maybe maybe we, should, we should stay indoors. All right? We're not doing these things again in order to be saved, in order to merit something from God. We're doing these things because we are saved, and we want to please God. You know, I think it was Houdini he said. He said it right. He said, the freaks come out at night. <laughs> right? Maybe we should heed that. that. That might be some wisdom there. The freaks come out at night. Well, guess what? If the freaks come out at the night, then the faithful Christian, he comes in at night. <laughs> so moving on. <laughs> I love, you know, 80s, 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 best genre of music ever, 80s. So moving on, we'll deal with the next few verses. Proverbs 7, verses 10 through 12. Now we're going to take a look at the characteristics and the behavior patterns of the, the adulteress, the unfaithful wife, the seductress, the one who seduces. Verse 10, and behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. So here we go. We have this young, foolish, simple man. If we use this analogy, he's about to get cooked. Right now, he's, 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 he's in the kitchen right now. But then we get to verse 10. It says, behold, a woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. So here's this dramatic shift, this all of a sudden. So now if he was in the kitchen before because he was in the wrong place, wrong direction, wrong time, now the, the oven door has opened up. So now that this woman has come out to meet him, we know the likelihood of this young man escaping this seduction, it has just significantly decreased. We see that one of the characteristics of the seductress is that she's wily of heart. In other words, she is crafty and she is, she is cunning. She is no fool, unlike the young man. So here it is. Here's the face-off. Here's the matchup. You have the foolish young man, the simple man in one corner, and then you have the wily, cunning, crafty, seductress in the other corner. So what else do we learn about this, the adulteress, this, the seductress? We learn that she is out and about all the time. Verses 11 to 12, she is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner, she lies in wait. You see, the seductress in this description, she kind of, Sounds like our adversary, the devil, Satan, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The seductress, she's she like the thief that we learned about last week when Pastor Leach preached. 
He's like the thief who comes only to steal and kill and destroy. We might even say that this seductress is the embodiment of the devil and the embodiment of sin. She is crafty, just like the serpent who deceived Eve by his cunning. She is deceitful, like sin, which seizes and deceives and kills us, as Paul reminds us in Romans 7. Now, moving on to the seduction, we see that in Proverbs 7, verses 13 through 20. The plot intensifies. The bell has rung. The fight is on. Who will strike first? So now if the oven door was open, now the temperature is being turned up and up and up. So we see verse 13. Who strikes first? She seizes him, kisses him. So right out of the gate, the seductress comes out swinging. Or maybe we should say she comes out grabbing and kissing. Here's a lesson for us here. If you don't make the first move against sin, sin will make the first move. And sin does make the first move. Wisdom would say flee. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual sin. Flee from fornication. See, what wisdom does, it anticipates sin. And because this young man, this foolish man, had no wisdom, what happened to him? He was caught. He was seized by the seductress. But the seductress not only uses actions to seduce, the seductress begins to seduce with her seductive words. Verse 13, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. Boldly she says this. So the seductress, she speaks unashamedly and confidently, assertively, with no sense of shame, no sense of guilt, no sense of wrongdoing in her approach. As a matter of fact, she adds a dose of spirituality to her seduction. Verse 14, it says her offering of sacrifices, um, that she offers sacrifices. So the fact that she offers sacrifices indicates, uh, the commentators say that this was a, it was a peace offering. So the seductress offers a peace offering. In a peace offering, it symbolizes communion between God and his people. And what would happen, the meat from this peace offering, it was to be eaten before the end of the day. So here this seductress is, offering up this peace offering, and then having this meat that needs to be eaten before the end of the day. So in meat in those days, it was a, it was a luxury item. I would argue still a luxury item in our day. I, you know, I love to eat some meat. That's always a good thing. Right? So the seductress, not only is she seducing this young foolish man with her body, she is seducing him with a, a good meal. As they say, that the quickest way to a man's heart is through his stomach, right? But I hope we, not, we just don't look at the hypocrisy in the life of the seductress, but that we would see even hypocrisy in our own life. Now, how often do we take what belongs to God and, and we use it for sinful and for selfish gain? Our bodies were purchased by the blood of Christ. We were bought with a price, and the Bible 
calls us to honor God with our bodies, but how often do we take them and use them for sin, for sexual sin? And how often do we worship God here on Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon with lifted voices and and lifted hands? We do this in the daytime. And then at night, we use those same voices and them same hands to engage in sin. How often does that happen? Thank God for a Savior. If you know anything by now, coming to Eastmore Church, you need a Savior. You need Jesus Christ. Moving on, we see that the seductress begins to flatter the young man. That's what seduction does. It, it flatters. Someone who is going to seduce, they're going to be crafty and cunning and, and using flattery. We see that in verse 15. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. So see in that one verse, the word you is mentioned three times. I've come out to meet you. I came to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. So the ductress, he makes this man feel like a million bucks. Well, I guess they didn't have bucks back then, so maybe shekels. Make him feel like a, a million shekels. You see, the focal point of sin is always self. See, we sin when we make much of ourselves and not of God. For the wise and and humble person, the wise and humble person is not seduced by flattery because that person understands that they are nothing apart from Christ. So the doctress continues. She continues to seduce. We see that the seductress appeals to the young man's senses. Verses 16 and 17. I have spread my couch with coverings, covered linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Now consider all the senses that were involved in this seduction. One, she seized him and kissed him, appealing to his sense of touch. Two, she speaks to him with confidence, appealing to his his hearing. Three, she presents him with the meat from her her peace offerings, appealing to his taste. Four, she flatters him, appealing to his sense of pride. So you guys thought we only had five senses, right? But I added a sixth one in there. We have this this sense of pride, so this flattery is appealing to a sense of pride. And five, she speaks of the colored linens, appealing to his sense of his sight. And in six now, she, she speaks of perfumes, appealing to his, his smell. You see, this young man, he's fully engaged in her seduction. His whole person is completely drawn in. And that's what seduction does. That's what sin does. It captures our mind, our emotions. In our senses, it draws us, it, it, it brings us in. And so next, you see, the seductress gives the invitation. So here it is, the oven door has, has been opened, the temperature's rising, and now it's at the hot point now. Here it is. Everything's starting to, to reach this climax. Verse 18, come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Now notice what this seductress does. She makes sin out to be good by substituting the word love for what was really going down. What was really going down? This is not love. 
This is adultery. It is sin. It is lust. It is sexual immorality. It is, it is fornication. You can insert any one of those words into the text in order to get to the truth of the matter. You see, that's what wisdom does. Wisdom calls sin what it is. Sin. You can baptize sin in any language, but it's still and it's always sin. Next, we see the seductress. She gives assurance. She puts the cherry on top. Verse 19. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. Undoubtedly, the seductor saves her biggest and best lie for the end. The lie is this, is that your sin has no consequences. There are no repercussions for your sin. You can get away with it. Brothers and sisters, if you think you won't be caught in your sin, you could be sure of this. Sin has caught you. You can never be safe in your sin. Why? Because sin is never safe. Now, perhaps a young man might escape the seductress's husband. But you could be sure of this. He will not escape God. And neither will we. You might think we might get away with sin in, in a temporal sense, in, in a short-term sense. But our sins are, are not hidden before God. Either you will pay for your sins or Christ has paid for your sins. And if Christ has paid for your sins, then that should be enough motivation and inspiration for us to do everything we can not to sin. So what do we see? What happens next? The seductress wins. Game over. He's in the oven. Oven door's closed. It's about to get cooked. Verses 21 through 23. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast and an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know it will cost him his life. So here it is, the seductress. She persists in her seduction and with her seductive speech. The end result, the young foolish man is seduced. She wins. Seduction wins. The seductress wins. She turns him aside. She leads him astray. See, in the text it says, all at once. It happens suddenly and immediately. He follows her. He surrenders. He gives in. Not much of a fight, huh? See, this is how seduction works. It keeps building and building and building. It keeps building until you begin yielding and yielding and yielding. Seduction builds and then people yield. Notice that this young man, he's compared to an ox going to the slaughter, a stag being caught fast, and a a bird rushing into a, a snare. You might even say that upon giving into this seduction and falling into this, this sin, this young man is reduced to a beast. 
Just like an animal, he was dumb and unaware and and ignorant to the danger that that lie before him. You know how easy it is for us in, in the third person, looking outside of the situation, to say, what a shame. But hopefully we would share those same sentiments about our own foolish sin. We would take a step outside and and look at our own selves and say, what are we doing? Let us not fall into that, that sin. What a shame. How foolish. How ignorant. How dumb we can be. You see, the young man, he, he also failed to count the cost of his decisions and his actions. So let this be a reminder and a warning to us to count the cost. And here's the thing. If we count the cost of sin we will always conclude that sin has a bad ROI. If you don't know what an ROI is, talk to Elder BJ. He'll, he'll explain that to you. And so then finally, we go to the end of chapter 7, and it, it ends where it begins, with a call to listen to the words of the Father. Verses 24 through 27. And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth, Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. So you might ask, well, how can I avoid being seduced? How can I not fall victim to seduction? How can I avoid the seductress? Well, it's just like the father told his son in the beginning, be attentive to the words of my mouth. Keep my commandments. Obey my teaching. Treasure it up. That's what Jesus, he tells us. Jesus tells us that we should live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The question is, what happens if, what happens when I give in to seduction, when I am seduced, when I do sin? What do I do? You look to Jesus. You believe in the gospel. You see, the son is instructed by his father to keep his commands. But Jesus, who is the son of the God, perfectly kept the father's commands. You see, the young man in this narrative gave in to temptation. But Jesus, he was tempted in every respect as we are, Yet, he was, out, he was without sin. He did not give in to temptation. See, the young man in this narrative, he wandered in the darkness. But Jesus, he is the light of the world who shines in the darkness. And the seductress, what did she do? She offered profane sacrifices. But Jesus, he offered himself up as the perfect sacrifice, truly and fully pleasing to God. The seductress, she offered the coverings of fine Egyptian linen. But Jesus offers the covering of righteousness in his blood. See, the young man, he delighted himself in lust and adultery. But Jesus delighted himself in doing the will of the Father. See, the young man in his sin, he was like an ox who's headed to the slaughter. But Jesus, who was a lamb of God, he was slaughtered for our sins. You see, the young man's sins, they cost him his own life. But it was our sins that cost Jesus his life. For the seductress, her house, it was the way 
to Sheol. But for Jesus, he says, I am the way. He is the truth, the life. He is the way to the Father, and he is eternal life. So that is the good news. That is the gospel. You want wisdom? Get Jesus, because the Bible says that Jesus, he is wisdom and righteousness. He is our wisdom, and he is our righteousness. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ and found in Christ alone.